Dave asked me to uh, do this for him since he was really busy and Jeff's out of town. So here I am. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm a little hesitant to start um, before there's usually a few more people here, but uh, because I want to sort of lay a scenario out, but they will have to miss it. That's okay. Let's uh, pray together. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this uh, wonderful letter that Paul wrote to his fellow soldier in the army of the Lord. And in perilous times like we are in, I see a lot of parallels to our day. And I just pray, Lord, that I know that you have something to say to each one of us here. <clears throat> and that you want to uh, equip us, prepare us, spur us on, and give us renewed hope. So, Lord, please accomplish that this morning um, through this passage. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's read. <clears throat> um, I did something that hopefully won't be confusing. And that is, when I did my own preparation, I used the ESV version, and I made all my notes on my little printout here. And then I used the NASB as well. So I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it in a, a little bit of a weird way. I'm going to read it and also give you sort of running explanation as we're going through it. And I'm going to read it from the ESV, but I will refer to the NASB. So 2 Timothy 4, Paul starts out with a charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, so, basically, Paul announces that he's going to give this charge to Timothy. The content of the charge is in verses 2 to 4. So, he says, here, here's the charge. Preach the word. That's the charge. Just those three sentences. <clears throat> I mean, three sentences, three words. Then he gives us what preaching the word entails, what it'll look like. Here's what preaching the word looks like. It looks like being ready in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. That's what preaching the word looks like. And then here's the reason why. For or because the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Does that ring a bell? Wait till you hear what myths really means. 
then it'll really ring a bell. So the charge, the content of the charge, preach the word, the reason for the charge, people are going to wander off into myths. And then he gives us a contrast in verse 5. And I want to ask you, what is the contrast between what and what? Or who and who? So verse 5 is the contrast. It starts with a contrast word. And the word in NASB is but. The word in the ESV is as. As for you, or but, you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So that is a contrast. So tell me, contrast between what and what? Yeah, exactly. It's, to, it's actually a contrast between the people, the kind of people in verses 3 and 4. The kind of people who have itching ears and they want to have preachers who will preach to suit their own passions. But the contrast to that is Timothy is not supposed to be anything like that at all. He's supposed to always be sober-minded He's supposed to always endure suffering. He's supposed to endure the, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill his ministry. Instead of wandering off, as pastors are doing these days, into muthos, which I'll tell you about in a minute, Timothy was supposed to be the opposite of them. That's the contrast. So the charge, preach the word, the reason people are going to wander off, the contrast, you're not supposed to be like them, Timothy. You're supposed to be the opposite of them. And then starting in verse 6, the reason why Paul needs Timothy to carry on. Basically, this whole, ch- this whole book, and especially this last chapter, Paul is passing on the baton. He's passing on the baton of ministry to Timothy. So I'm going to start right now, and I'm going to come back at you again. Most of us are not young whippersnappers in here, <clears throat> except for Stephen. He's a young whippersnapper. Um, and, oh, there's Bear. He is too. Um, what about you? <laughs> You're an old stuffist. You're into stuff. So here's what I want to ask you. Who are you passing the baton on to? Who are you equipping and preparing and thinking about that this person or persons is going to carry on your service to Jesus Christ? And you are intentionally planning to prepare them. 
Now that most of you are here, I'm going to interrupt the reading and ask you to do a little imagining. If you were living in what you were pretty sure were your last days on earth, and you had started a business years before, and this business had really prospered, now has a thousand employees and a thousand family members depending on those employees. And your son was going to take over the business after your passing. And you wrote him a final letter. What would you tell him? What would you tell him? Would you tell him to work hard to ensure that your products and services were the highest possible quality? Would you tell him to only engage in clear, true advertising? Would you tell him to watch out for unscrupulous competitors? Would you name some former employees who had stolen from you and lied about you and your business? Would you tell him stories of your business experiences and the hardships that you had endured? Would you actually name some co-workers who you trusted and who had helped you to make your business a success? Would you tell him your own personal life purpose that gave meaning to all that you had done? Possibly, this is a small parallel to what Timothy is doing with, or what Paul is doing with Timothy. So he gives the charge in verse 1. The charge is preach the word. He gives the reason for the charge. People are going to wander away. And then he gives a contrast. You're not supposed to be like those people. And then in verse 6, he gives the reason why he's passing the baton on to Timothy and why he needs to let his ministry go. Why, why does he anticipate that he needs to have somebody else pick it up and carry it on? Where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison the second time. And this time, it's much more austere. He's not living in a, you know, his own quarters and able to have people come and have him teach them. He's anticipating his death. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Clears the bell, right? He's going to die. He needs Timothy to carry on. He says, so this is the reasons why he wants Timothy to be the kind of person that he says in verse 5. He's going he's gonna to die. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's Paul's final resume. What's your final resume going to look like? I have fought the good fight. The good fight. I have finished the race. Sometimes peace is not a good idea. Sometimes negotiating is not a good idea. Sometimes the only thing that's called for is a good fight. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the reason that Paul gives of why Timothy needs to take the baton and keep running the race, keep fighting the fight. Then he says, here's Paul's personal desire. Do your best to come to me soon. And then he gives the reasons for this desire. Now try to, try to get the feel of where Paul is in his heart, in his emotions. Do your best to come to me soon. The NAS says, make every effort to come to me soon. Why? He's alone in a prison cell. It's cold. It's miserable. He knows death is coming. He doesn't know if it'll be today, this afternoon, or tomorrow. And Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Betrayal. He's been betrayed. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. I think these were assignments, not betrayals. Luke alone is with me. There he is, all by himself. Just Luke. Nobody else. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I I need help. Whatever, however many days or weeks or months the Lord is leaving me with, I need help. Luke is not enough. All of my team are gone. Some of them are betrayers. Some of them I've sent off on assignments. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. Do you hear Paul? He's a real guy. He's cold. He wants a coat. He loves the Word of God. He wants to study. So he wants the parchments, the books. And then he says, Timothy, watch out. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, hear the loneliness? At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Sounds like there are a bunch of fellow believers who washed out. When the, to- tough, when the going got tough, They weren't the tough. This doesn't suggest they lost their salvation if they were truly saved. We just can't read any more into it than that. But even though I was forsaken and betrayed and I'm now alone, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
he's comparing himself as being in the mouth of a lion with bone-crunching, powerful jaws and teeth. And the Lord rescued him. The Lord will rescue me. Now he's thinking future. From every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now he ends with expressing his affections for his team. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. I need you, Timothy. Come. Come soon. Bring the coat. Bring the parchments. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Are you starting to feel it a little bit? Are you starting to smell the dust and the rat poop in the prison cell? And feel the chafing of the chains on his wrists and his ankles and his aloneness? Well, in this chapter... There are primarily commands, imperatives, and facts, indicatives. There are 17 imperatives and 41 indicatives. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, Timothy, I'm passing the baton on to you. You've got to carry on the ministry. I'm being taken away. I'm being taken away out of this world. I'm weak, I'm old, I'm lonely, I'm cold. And I need you. And so I'm going to tell you what you ought to do. I'm going to tell you what your perspective ought to be. I'm going to tell you what your attitude ought to be. What your motivations should be. I'm going to tell you the kind of man you need to be as a pastor. And I'm going to give you all kinds of factual reasons why this is the situation. So let's look at the 17 imperatives first. The most important are in verses 2 and 5. This is to be, and I left some blanks for you, and you, sorry, I don't want to treat you like junior hires, but I wanted to uh, keep your attention. So if you have a writing implement, then... Timothy's priority is in verse 2 and verse 5. And the priority is preach the word. And verse 5, in all things be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, complete or fulfill your ministry. That's the priority. Those commands. And then Timothy's perspective the kind of mental attitude he's supposed to have. It all starts with how we think, right? Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. 
So what you think, how you think, what you believe, including your desires, that's, that's who you are. That's the way you'll live. So his, his, his perspective, his attitude is this sober-minded thing. Have this attitude of, I'm going to push on through suffering. I'm going to focus on doing evangelism, on proclaiming the gospel. And I'm going to go to the end. I'm not going to be wearied out in well-doing and give up. I'm not going to become discouraged and just say, forget it. I'm going to fulfill my ministry. And then he has a command in verse 9, the urgency of coming to Paul. So do your best to come soon. And then he repeats that command in verse 21, do your best to come before winter. And then he gives a warning in verses 14 and 15. And the warning is, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. His primary opposition was to the gospel. He strongly opposed our message. But he opposed Paul, too, the person who is the bearer of the message. And finally, his last command is greet his team workers. Show them, give them the message of my affection, my love, my appreciation for them. Then there were 41 indicatives. And there are various kinds of facts. His sufferings. He, he recalls for Timothy his sufferings. Then he, he speaks of the future as a fact. And of course, he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he can do that. He says, the time is coming. This is a fact. This is not, maybe it'll happen. This is not, I hope it doesn't, but it, maybe it will, probably it will. No, this will happen. What will happen? People will not endure sound teaching. Isn't that right now? I think this is maybe, it's always been this way, but I think maybe because of the electronic and social media and internet and the speed at which people's thoughts and ideas and words go flying around the whole world, I think maybe now it's more of this than it's ever been. People having itching ears. And so they cancel or take down their YouTube sermon because it's not politically correct. It's not wokely correct. So, people's future desires and motives. Now, I want to tell you about this word muthos, myths, verse 4. He says, they will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myths. And it's so sad that we have to say now, the evidence is too much that the Southern Baptist Convention is this very thing. They are, they are turning away from the truth while saying out of one side of their mouth they're not. And they are wandering into myths. So what are muthos? Well, the word 
basically means talk, conversations that are false, fictions, the opposite of aletheia, truth, and logos, the word. That is exactly what's happening right now. This isn't like, you know, I don't know, what, fantasy myths of ghosts and goblins or something. No, this is, this is ideological conversations in books. If you listen to some of the, the folks out there who are uh, knowledgeable about the development of critical theory, critical race theory, critical social justice, intersectionality. If you see the evolution of that, it's all talk and conversation. It's all philosophical papers and books. Gramsci in, in prison in Italy was hugely influenced. With his, he, here he is stuck in a prison cell, so what does he do? He writes all kinds of books that influence, take over the universities later on in America. This is the myths. It's a fact. Paul says it's going to happen. And then there's another wonderful, not another wonderful fact, a wonderful fact. God's reward for faithful service. Paul is thinking about that. God has laid up for him the crown of righteousness. That's not his own earned righteousness, we know, right? It's the gifted righteousness that Jesus Christ lived and earned and was given, will be given to Paul and given to us, also to all who have loved his appearing. Don't we love his appearing? Don't we long for him to come? Wouldn't we love to have him show up at the barbecue and, and Jim could serve him some S-Way hamburgers? And have him set up his kingdom? Paul is longing for this. This is his hope. This is a fact. This is not just wishful thinking. This is an indicative fact. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The Lord will award it to me on that day. And the will He will award it to you too if you love His appearing. And you do. It's a fact. It's a certainty. It's a definite. It's an absolute And then he talks about betrayals. Betrayals of trusted co-worker like Demas. And Demas did just what the world tells people to do now. Follow your heart. Go wander around the earth and find your heart. Find out who you are. Well, Demas did it. He was in love with the present world and he deserted Paul. And then Paul had assignments. He sent off these others, Crescens and Titus and Tychicus. And so now he's alone. 
Only Luke is with him. And I have, a, I have a sense that in verse 16, when he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I have a, a sense that maybe this was connected with Alexander the coppersmith. And, you know, he was attacked and offensed and acu- uh, aff- opposed and accused many times. And he says, no one, no one stood there with me. You know, I have to tell you that um, the time came, most of you know about it, the time came in, in our church when I was the teaching elder and uh, there were eight elders and all of a sudden um, three of the elders announced they didn't believe in inerrancy of scripture and they really didn't like they didn't they weren't real uh, wild about homeschooling and my wife and I were homeschoolers although we were not saying that everybody should do that we were saying that everybody should teach their own children so I was attacked in fact one elder or one man wasn't an elder said, look, Alan, we'll, we'll get, you take a year sabbatical and we'll pay for your whole year. You just go do whatever you want. And, you know, when you come back, you, you can try and maybe you'll be accepted back as a pastor. And then it was overheard that they had plans of this was a way of getting rid of me. And I just, I don't think I would have made it if I was all by myself. But I wasn't all by myself. Dave was with me. And Dave helped me to endure. We helped each other. And for quite a while, we were the only two elders. And I'll tell you, it's hard. When half the people in this church left, and accused us of all kinds of things. I can kind of relate to how Paul must have been feeling. But the Lord stood by him. The Lord rescued him out of the lion's mouth. And Paul had so much affection and so much appreciation for this team of people who had been faithful with him to the Lord. So that's kind of a list, an overview. Yes? Well, Paul is having compassion. He has a forgiving heart. Um, I think he probably, you know, he understood that we are but flesh, we're weak, and we fail, and we, like Peter did, right? Um, so I think he wants, he's asking God to, to forgive them and not to hold it against them. Well, let's go on to the key words. I want to just go through this. You've gotten the overview of the chapter now. You should have the feel of what's going on here between Paul and Timothy. So I want to just zoom in a little bit on some of these commands. The, when he says, I charge you in the presence of God, that is really not a command. 
it's a statement of fact. It comes across in English as if it's a command, but it isn't. And it's the, the Greek word diamartoromai. And it's a combination of dia, which means through, and martyromai. Maybe you can hear the word martyr in there. So what is a martyr? We think of it as someone who was killed for Christ. And that's the way the word has evolved. But literally, the word just means to be a witness. Many were killed. It means to exhort. He's exhorting Timothy in regarding grave and important matters. To be a witness and keep on, keep on, in spite of opposition, in spite of rejection, in spite of being unpopular, in spite of being put in prison. So that's where he starts. This is the charge. And the charge is preach the word. This is the priority. Preach the word. And have this perspective that's in verse 5, that we'll get to in a minute. The word preach basically means to announce and proclaim. And he says, here's what it's going to look like. You're to do it in season and out of season, whatever the circumstances are. If, if it's really bad weather or if it's really nice sunny weather, if it's things that people are responsive and receptive, or if people are contrary and, and betraying and attacking, it doesn't matter. Preach the word. That's the theme for us, right, as a church. Here's what it'll look like. Here's what preaching will look like. It'll include reproving. What's reproving? Correcting? Showing people to be guilty? It'll look like, well, let me go back. Before that, it'll look like being ready in season and out of season. What's being ready? Literally, it means, King James says, be instant. Holman Christian Standard Bible says, persist. The Darby Bible says, be urgent. Literally, it means to stand near. Be in a place where you can act. I've had the the privilege of helping my son this past week with excavating. And so, you know, I've been around. I know how to work. I know how to stand near. I know how to be ready. So when he's digging up three-inch thick chunks of asphalt to put a pipeline through there, and they have to go into the dump trailer to go to Robinson, I'm standing there. Eddie's picking up chunks of heavy asphalt, throwing them in the bucket on the skid steer. I'm standing there, right, and I'm doing nothing. No. I'm picking them up too. I'm standing there. I'm ready. I'm available. I got some strength left, so yeah, I can pick up. Jonathan goes, no, Dad, come on. Here, you do the little ones. We'll get the big ones. Okay, okay. I'm standing by. I'm ready. I'm wanting to help. I'm loving to help. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. You be ready. You have that attitude. You put yourself in the place where when the opportunity comes, you can jump on it. Be in the place where you can act. 
Reprove means correct, to show guilty. Rebuke means to warn forcefully, to admonish, to put in mind. Exhort means to earnestly encourage to take action. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. With patience, this is macrothemia, long enduring. There's another word, hupomeno, which means to stay under. It's not that word, it's this word, long enduring. This is a race. This is a fight. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. And then he says, and teaching, with teaching. I've always kind of wrestled a little bit with the difference between preaching and teaching. And preaching is announcing, proclaiming, it's a little more, I would say, more motivational. Teaching is educating, explaining. It's aiming more at the mind, not only the emotions. So I would say that what we've done here and what we still do here is, is preaching slash teaching. It's both elements are there together. You kind of go back and forth. Always in all things. Sober-minded. What's sober-minded? Well, it literally means to be self-controlled. To restrain the influences of inordinate emotions and, and desires. Restrain them. Bring yourself under control. The control of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Endure suffering. Endure hardship. Experience human harm and emotional pain and keep on preaching and keep on witnessing and keep on teaching. Don't stop. Take every opportunity. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. Work at proclaiming the gospel. Always be looking for opportunities. Always be... I, I love stand, the ministry Stand to Reason because... Uh, What's his name? Uh, anyway, anybody remember his name? Y yeah, right. Say it again. Yeah, Greg Kokel. Anyway, Greg doesn't sound right, but that, I think you're right. Anyway, um, he gives you uh, ways of entering into a conversation. And it's very helpful. I mean, there's all kinds of witnessing tools right there and training, right? So we've done them here. Educate yourself. Keep yourself up to speed. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, he says. Do the complete job. Don't leave things undone. Don't leave things done poorly. Do it all, Timothy. So these two series of commands are the core priorities for Timothy. This is a summary of what Timothy as a pastor was to be all about. But guess what? It's not just for pastors. It's for all of us. You say, really? It sounds like it's just for Timothy here. Well, listen to Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Listen to 1 Peter 5.3, spoken to by Peter to elders. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving examples to the flock. So the elders are to be examples. The pastors are to show, this is the way you live your life. This is the way you, you are as a Christian. So 
there to do it and where to follow their example. Listen to John 13. Jesus, I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do. Oh, did you hear that? I gave you an example that you should do. You, just the pastors, just the clergy, right? No. All of you. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you memorize them. If you put up little plaques around your house of them. No. If you do them. So those are some of the key words that are in the commands. Now look at, let's look real quick at the key words that are in the facts. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, serving Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a fight. It's a war. You know that. Dave preached on Ephesians 6 and the, the armor that we need in the war. It's a race. It's a good fight. There's some fights that are not good fights. A lot of marriages have fights, and they're not good fights. This is a good fight. This is the best fight. This is the most important fight. This is the fight that will determine eternity for some souls. And I finished the race. It's a race. What do you, what do you want to do in a race? You want to win. And who's the competition with? Yourself. That you flee youthful lusts. And you beat them down. You put off the flesh. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Colossians 3. And I have kept the faith. In other words, he says, I have kept the beliefs that screen out lies and deceptions and holds on to the truth. And then he, the fact, that's a fact. This is what living for Jesus Christ looks like, Timothy. I've done it, and I know he means by God's grace. So you can do it too, Timothy. Henceforth, there's laid up for me this crown of righteousness. These rewards motivate Paul. His love for the Lord motivates him. His love for people, his love for the truth motivates him. But it's not wrong to be motivated by rewards. Rewards from the Lord. They're good. They're not earned by good works, really. They're earned by faithfulness. So this is the works that follow salvation, right? In that day, we know what that is, the, the day that Christ returns. 
In verses 10 to 13, he contrasts the powerful lure of the world, the cosmos, the organized system of ideas and possessions and people that are a big magnet sucking us away from the Lord and fighting against him. The cosmos, the world, is a powerful lure and deceiver. And separations in ministry, splits, fights, disagreements are hard and painful. In verses 14 and 15, Paul makes sure that Timothy understands the enemies of Jesus Christ can cause great harm. They can. Yes, God's still sovereign. He's still in control. But he does allow evil. He does allow false teachers. He does use them in the end for his good and for our good. The word harm is the Greek word kakos, kakos. It means evil, wrong, harm, bad. It's evil acting, evil speaking, motives that cause injury and pain and grief, torment, trauma, anguish. It's all in there. And then in verse 16, he describes being alone. No one came to stand with me. All deserted me. He was alone when he was attacked. He was alone when he was accused. This was a great tribulation for Paul. There was desertion, dereliction of duty, betrayal, defection to the enemy. Can you imagine how that ripped Paul's heart? but God rescued him. When no human stood by him, when no human was standing against the attack with him, God stood by him. Paul was strengthened to not give up, to not cave in to doubts. You know one of the big things you want when you're under attack? What's the big thing you want? Relief. That's it. You want it to just go away and stop or else you want to run away. Ask Joy how many times I've wanted to run away. And it can be a a temptation, a huge temptation to say, I want relief and I'm just going to take relief. Paul didn't do it. He was strengthened not to give in to the desire for relief. So God rescued him, just like 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, right? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You're not alone in this. That's the way we feel. Nobody else has gone through what I'm going through. Oh, yes, they have. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but will with the temptation provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And I don't have to tell you, the escape is not from the temptation and the the suffering. The escape is from sin in it, right? So then in verses 18 to 22, I I like to call these verses the fellowship of the gospel. But it did remind me of the fellowship of the ring. If you, you know, here, poor little feeble Frodo has got this giant burden. And if he didn't have a team with him, if he didn't have a faithful Samgee, Sam, Samgee, what's, what's his name? Samwise Gamgee, there we go, thank you, that was with him for the end, even carried the burden for him with, for him for a little while. Th- this sounds like kind of what, what Paul had. And he wants to display his affection. Turn back to chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was Paul's team. Faithful men, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. See, Timothy, remember this. You've got to be strong to preach the word. You've got to be strong, sober-minded, serious-minded, self-controlled. No one entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I pondered this passage many times, and I'm going, what? what's this? How, how does this work, Paul? I'm to be a soldier? I'm to be like a soldier. I'm to be like an athlete. I'm to be like a farmer. What is common between the soldier, the athlete, the farmer? They're all workers. They all have to prepare. They're all working, fighting, laboring for something that is a delayed reward. The soldier is fighting not just to win a battle. He wants the war to be over by winning all, all the battles. So the, the end of the war is, is out there a ways. The athlete, he's training, lifting weights, running laps, all that, CrossFit. He's doing this to win the race. But how many laps, how many miles does he have to run? It's at the end. And the farmer, he plows the field, he pulls out the rocks, pulls out the weeds, he plants the seeds, he arranges for water, and he waits, and he waits. And he keeps on, keeps pulling some more weeds out, getting rid of those insects, pulling those big ugly worms off the tomato plants so he can get the tomatoes. It's all in the end. And so back in chapter 4, 
Paul's primary focus is, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge. He's the judge. He's the one who will be sitting on the great white throne. He's the one who will send Satan and his demons and the unbelievers into the the second death, the lake of fire, the torment. He's the one with all the power. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So Timothy, how can you do this? You've got to remember. You've got to keep Jesus Christ in your thinking. You've got to keep remembering what he has done, who he is, what he's going to do. So finally, to wrap this up, Paul's life as an apostle and disciple maker. Preaching the word was the priority. Having a perspective of to endure suffering, be self-controlled. You know what comes out through all of this? Paul was a real person. He wasn't a statue in front of a church. He was a real guy. He suffered loneliness. He didn't like being cold. He felt the pain of betrayals. He was encouraged to keep going by the fellowship of his, his team of the believers that were with him. We're never meant to be one stick out of the fire, right? We're meant to be in the fire with all the other sticks, burning and blazing. He felt the pain of betrayals. And most important, and I left this for last, was Paul was devoted to Jesus Christ. He longed for his appearing. His hope is what enabled him to endure. We read 2 Timothy 2. He was looking for the end reward. Not the quick fix. Not the immediate pleasure. So Paul's hope was for the coming of Jesus Christ. When he would judge evil people. When he would reign on the earth. When he'd make the new heavens and the new earth. When Paul would have a new body. And he would see Jesus face to face. And walk with him. And explore with him. You know, have you, have you thought about the new earth much? You should. I'm imagining, but I'm imagining that all of us will be exploring this new earth and the whole universe. And Jesus will be with each one of us everywhere we go at all times. Because he's omnipresent. He's God. So I can be walking with him. Michelle can be walking with him. She doesn't need Wes anymore. She doesn't have Jesus. So this is what Paul's hope was. He will be living, he's looking forward to living forever in a perfect earth with all the joys and wonders of God's creation restored and the fullest of all pleasures, Christ himself. Worshiping. And you know what worshiping is? 
Worshiping is enjoying, praising. When you enjoy something, you can't help but praise it. You can't help but talk about it. And part of the joy is in the telling. C.S. Lewis had a lot of good things to say about this. So Paul was content. He was ready to be called home. And he was passing the baton on to Timothy. So are you planning to pass the baton on of your life? You should have been working on this years ago. Who are you going to pass the baton on to? Who's going to pick up and carry on where you've left off? Do you know who that person is? Would you be prepared to write a letter to that person as your last letter? Would it be like Paul's letter? Are you even now, even if you have adult children, like we most all do, are you training them and equipping them even now when they invite you? Remember, you're no longer the the parent to order. You're now the adult parent or even grandparent to offer. So think about the kind of letter you would write. Lord, thank you so much for this letter from Paul. Thank you for letting us see his heart. We know that Timothy was struggling with timidity and self-doubt like, Lord, we are often assailed with. And we thank you for this final, these final words from Paul. Help us to take them to ourselves for your glory. And help us to always keep you, Lord Jesus, in the forefront of our minds, before our spiritual eyes, as our only real hope. And we we look forward to your coming so much. We pray in your name. Amen.